This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And oh man, are we about to go on a journey. 53,000 miles, six years, two wheels, and one epic adventure. We're about to ride a bike across six continents. Are you ready to pedal around the world? Yeah, me too. Let's go. But this is more than just an insanely long bike ride. Our guest today is Stephen Faves. And before he set off on this journey, he was an emergency room doctor working in the NHS in London. He loved his job. He was good at it. He had an incredible career in front of him, friends, family. But he saw that timeline stretching out to infinity. He saw the rest of his life unfolding before him. And as proud as he was of what that life would be, it felt too predictable, too mapped out. Not enough uncertainty, not enough surprise, not enough adventure. So in his own words, he blew it up. He quit his job, he hopped on his bike, and he left. He literally pedaled away from St. Thomas's Hospital in London where he's working, and he didn't stop pedaling for six years. He went from respected career, nice flat in London, to vagabond, basically, living on almost no money and sleeping by the side of the road. And guess what? He loved every minute of it. So this is a story about that adventure, but it's also more than that too. And that's what makes this story really special. Because the more Stephen traveled, the more curious he became about how medicine and healthcare was being done in the places he visited. He became curious about how different societies treat their most vulnerable and what that meant for the underlying causes of disease. And as he visited medical clinics and refugee camps and slums along the way, he began to see healthcare as something far more complex than just physical ailments in the body. He began to see it as a lens through which we can see ourselves better, our differences, our shared humanity, our triumphs, our despairs. He set off for an adventure, but what he came back with was an even deeper love and passion for the job he'd left behind and a deeper sense of what healthcare means, not just for us as individuals, but for us as part of a global community, intimately connected and dependent on one another to survive. The book of his journey is called Signs of Life, A Doctor's Journey to the Ends of the Earth. And if you read only one travel book this year, make it this one. I absolutely loved it. He's a beautiful writer. It's really an incredible adventure story. But he's also really, really funny. He's fun to travel with. He's deep. He's incredibly observant. And at times, he's incredibly profound, too. I think you're going to love it. I know you will. Just search it up on Amazon or head over to his website for more info, stephenfabes.com. His Instagram is at stephenfabes. The Twitter is Dr. Stephen Fabes. And the Facebook page is Cycling the Six. So we're just about to get started. But before we do, remember, if you're enjoying the show, please help spread the word. Tell a friend, a fellow explorer, or just someone who needs an escape. We are building a community of people that love the outdoors, that love adventure, and want to celebrate the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. If that sounds like you, come and hang out. We're going to get on well. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. 
I post lots of background content from each episode, as well as some of my own travel photography and adventure inspiration. And Stephen has some incredible images from his trip, by the way, that I will be sharing too. So please do go and connect with me. I'd love to hang out. The website is armchair-explorer.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter and book trips inspired by the show. Just drop me a line through that or social. I've set up an adventure travel agency to help you plan and book that dream trip. So get in touch. Let's make it happen. But don't worry about that right now, because we are about to set off on a 53,000-mile journey around the world. It's an incredible story. But first... Let's hear about the trip that changed Stephen's life. So when I was 19, I went to South America with my younger brother, Ronan. And I, we had a plan that was going to try and cycle the length of Chile right from the bottom to the top of the country. It was like my first kind of taste of adventure. and I was instantly drawn to this idea of being out in the world and feeling kind of quite vulnerable, being out in sort of wild places. There was the freedom of cycling all day and then just throwing our tent up by the side of the road. So that felt very liberating as well. And um, I guess it was a an introduction to that uncertainty that you get as well with traveling. We made loads of mistakes. It was a bit of a disaster in some sense in that we ran out of money, we ran out of food, we kind of had fights with each other and we were pretty sort of wet behind the ears but then we, we got through it and that for me was my first kind of taste of adventure and my first experience of traveling a long distance on a bicycle and it was at the end of that trip in the Atacama Desert when I was sort of thinking that I was about to come home and I sort of began to think that well, what if I kept going? I could get to Colombia in a few months, then I could keep going, I could even get to Alaska. And that sort of opened something up, I guess, this this idea that it would be possible to continue to go for a longer journey by bicycle. I could get perhaps all the way around the world. And so that's where the idea sprang from. Something opened up inside. That's a great way to describe it because sometimes those big preposterous ideas that break the mold of what is expected, of the kind of life that school and your parents and society has prescribed for you, those ideas are hard to form, they're hard to come by. They need a spark, they need a catalyst, they need something to open up inside you and show you all the limitless possibilities that your life could be, that you could be, if you could just think wider, bigger. If you could just break out of the box in which you were born and raised and do something crazy and incredible, something for you, something you've always dreamed of. What if that trip didn't have to be confined to a summer or a sabbatical or a two-week break? What if it didn't have to be confined to a country or even any plan at all? What if you could just keep going? But he didn't. Not yet. He flew home and spent five years training as a doctor, then two more as a junior doctor before landing his first proper gig at a big hospital in London. He'd put the time in. He'd worked his socks off to learn his trade. He should have been happy. He should have been ready to start his career and his life properly. But instead, that thought, that crazy thought he had years ago in the Atacama Desert kept coming back. What if he hadn't stopped there? What if he had just kept going? I was working at St Thomas's Hospital, which is this big teaching hospital, prestigious building in London, opposite the House of Parliament. And I was working as a junior doctor and I kind of loved the job, really. It was like I was really interested in medicine. I was 
very much passionate about what I was doing, hearing lots of stories from patients and things like that. So it was hectic, it was hard, it was it was always challenging. You'd learn you're you're moving specialties at that point in your career, like every sort of four months. And so you're then having to learn lots of new skills. And there is this huge sense of responsibility as well. Come home wondering whether you've made the right decisions. But there were just so many rewards as well. There was It was a great privilege for me to be listening to people's stories. And that's um, a real big part of being a doctor is just sort of listening to people. And I, I felt that by doing that, I was able to kind of understand a little bit about some of the issues in London. But I did get this sense at that point that my life felt a bit too sort of mapped out and a bit predictable. And I didn't want to just sort of find myself 10, 15 years later uh, and figuring that not much has changed. I remember there being very much a now or never moment. So I think that the desire for a sort of some uncertainty was definitely what drove me to basically blow up my life, you know, just to kind of like quit this job, take my name off the medical register and go on a big adventure. An idea sparked in Chile, he writes, was now a raging chain reaction. A country or even a continent wasn't enough this time. I'd scribbled something far more ambitious in my mini atlas. Right across six continents, Europe first, then Africa, South America, North America, Australia and Asia. I could think of no better way, he writes, to feel the scale and diversity of the globe. I will tackle each loosely, knowing only where I'd begin. Space for serendipity, for risk. He started saving. He started planning. He was ready for the unknown, ready to unshackle himself from the predictable path he saw unfolding and grab at something wilder and untamed. Because uncertainty, he also writes, whether in life or in bike rides, is the heart and soul of any journey. As outside St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, this was the 5th of January 2010, and surrounded by doctors, nurses, friends, family, and everyone had kind of come off to come to wave me goodbye. Um, and I was feeling good at that stage, I think. I was feeling confident, excited, all those things. And then a couple of friends stretched across this start line and I pedaled through the start line and across the forecourt of St. Thomas's Hospital and feeling good. And then I, I, those feelings kind of lasted until I got to Westminster Bridge, which is about 50 metres away. And then it started to dawn on me all the, uh, the many ways that I might not be particularly suited to this kind of journey. Thought about the fact that I hadn't done much training. I also was aware that my sense of directions is sketchy at best and that I've got, I'm pretty bad uh, bike mechanic as well. So like all these things began to start weighing heavily on me as I cycled out of London. And, and I'd, been, I'd been cycling around the world for about 20 minutes when I realized that I was coming past this um, a pub that I'd had the, I'd actually had the plan to cycle around the world in a pub about two years before with an atlas and so I, I thought I'd stop in the pub and I'd kind of collect my thoughts and then about two three hours later I was still collecting my thoughts in this pub whilst my friends and family thought that I was on my way to France in the end some friends arrived down to the pub like a kind of intervention and I was bundled out of the the pub back onto my bicycle started cycling I'd left in the middle of the winter time, so there wasn't much light left. Um, I'd left at lunchtime uh, from outside the hospital, so by this time it was getting dark. I found a guest house in Bexley Heath, so that was uh, still within in London. I'd managed 14 miles. I was exhausted. Uh, my arse hurt. I just collapsed onto this bed in the guest house, and um, 
fell asleep very quickly and I woke up the next morning because this like intense white light was just pouring in through the window of this guest house. And I went over and I looked outside, it looked like Arctic tundra. So I switched on the TV news, it's BBC News, and there's this banner at the bottom of the screen that said the big freeze. And there'd been record-breaking snowfall across the UK. The temperature that night had fallen to minus 17 degrees in Manchester, and the army had been mobilised to assist stranded motorists. It was reported at the time as being the coldest European winter for 31 years, and I'd, I'd left right in the middle of it. And um, so I, I, I kind of I left this guest house, thick snow. Of course, there were a lot of kids were off school as well. There were about 8,000 schools closed across the UK, which meant that a lot of kids were having snowball fights. I was attacked for the next 100 miles as I cycled across the southeast of England. I did one of my most vivid and final memories of leaving the UK is this threatening 11-year-old near Dartford who just shouts, get him in the face, and all his friends agree, and I, they just kind of unleash this attack. I love that. Despite meticulously planning for years, he left in the middle of winter without any physical training, bike mechanic know-how, or even any actual cycling at all. No wonder he ended up down the pub 20 minutes after he started. But he made it. He cycled down to the south of England, fought off the armies of 11-year-old snowballers, jumped on the ferry and watched the white cliffs of Dover fade into the distance as he crossed the channel towards France. That's when it got really cold. And that's when he realised the adventure had really begun. It reminded me how unprepared I was. It reminded me that, you know, I was, I'd kind of lived this cushy city boy lifestyle probably for the last little bit. And, and I was really unprepared for the cold. I didn't have the right equipment. I was trying to cross the Alps in the wintertime. The temperature was minus 20 degrees um, uh, in my tent. Uh, lots of snow still for this part of the journey and I was having a really miserable time really I wasn't enjoying it at all I was very much questioning my life choices at this point but advice I'd been given prior to leaving was just to try and sort of take one day at a time and not to think of this as a, a five or a six year bike ride and that really helped actually and um, eventually I did I got into the Alps and then I, I just sort of swung down to the coast and I passed through Western Europe into Eastern Europe and, and there the weather had turned a little bit. It was getting a little bit warmer. I was a bit fitter physically. So that very much felt like more of the adventure that I was seeking at the beginning. And he had a treat in store because as the weather warmed, the people warmed too. He fought his way south towards Nice in southern France, crossed northern Italy via Venice, and then broke south following the Adriatic coast towards Greece. And it was on the way there that he discovered his first real taste of the kindness and generosity of strangers he would meet on the road. So hospitality was very much the theme to my trip, and I think there's something about the bicycle here. As a travelling cyclist, you know, you're quite blatant, you're moving very slowly, and you're very approachable. People come up all the time, they're curious, they want to know where you're off to. And that's where you get into conversations, and, and then people often invite you to stay at their home, or, you know, in the police station, or the school, or the mosque, or the monastery. So lots of different places that I, I slept in. So I began to see my bicycle as a kind of backstage pass to the world, really. And of course, people use bicycles all over the world. So it's, it's something I think that's a bit relatable as well. When I was traveling through Albania, I was coming through a village and there was this football pitch on the edge of the village. And I thought, I'll, I'll put my tent. My plan was to try and rough camp as much as I could. So I put my, my tent on the football pitch. And then this guy came over to me 
He looked a bit disappointed by my, my lifestyle, I suppose, and he introduced himself as Zef. And it was very clear that he didn't speak any more English. And it came obvious that he was inviting me to spend the night in his home. So I accepted his invitation. I packed up my tent and I went to, into his home. It's this very simple sort of white walled building. I had quite a big family, uh, several kids. His sister was there, his wife was there. And the gave me a load of food and they all sat around me in this very intense semicircle watching me eat and serving me more and more food as the evening kind of went on. We tried to communicate as best I could, just kind of sort of miming answers to things. Deaf sister understood English, but she was profoundly deaf. So she would write down questions to me on little bits of paper and she would kind of push them across the table. And the first question said, are you shameful? And I had to think about this for a while. I thought, oh, she probably means shy. Are you shy? And I, th- and I thought, well, I thought I am pretty shy, especially when so many people are watching me eat. So I said, yes. And then the next question arrived on a piece of paper and it said, uh, are you happy? Uh, I said, yes. And I felt really pretty sure that I was, you know, I was feeling pretty happy. So I said, yeah. And um, then she slid another note across the table to me. And this one said, Princess Diana, accident or murder because when you're from a small village in albania and the first englishman you've ever met comes to tea what else would you ask them so after albania he turned east across northern greece survived the madness of istanbul on a bike and then climbed steadily through turkey through a landscape he describes as burnt to rust and butterscotch hoopoos fluttering between trees parasitic dodder vines invading the fields the hunking kangal shepherd dogs too wasted to give chase. And then from there, it was downhill all the way through the pine forests and olive groves of the Taurus Mountains to Syria and the start of the Middle East. Entering Syria, the signpost just said, Syria welcomes its dear guests. From that moment on, I was just kind of got very quickly used to all this hospitality all these presents being loaded to me, lots of time to stop and drink tea with people. My most memorable experience, I think, was on my birthday. So I was just turned 30 and I was cycling past this village and these two guys kind of like waved me down and I stopped and got into this conversation with this young guy called Tarek who spoke pretty good English. And then there was an, an older guy called Mustafa who didn't speak any English, so Tarek was doing all the translating. They kind of convinced me to stop in the shade, have some tea with them. Um, at one point, Tarek translated for Mustafa. He said, Mustafa loves you and he wants you to have three kilograms of meat. <laughs> I thought, can you tell Mustafa thank you, but it's going to be difficult. Uh, I don't really want to carry three kilograms of meat through the desert. That's probably not going to be a great idea. And when Tarek found out it was my birthday which I, I told him a bit later on um, they basically threw me this huge birthday party which was fantastic which meant inviting lots of people from the surrounding villages around dressing me up in uh, Arabic clothes and uh, kind of waiting on me all night you know bringing me food and things like that and then his brother made a little sheet tent for me in the garden and I was you know treated to a shower and all kinds of things it was, it was just fantastic and I sometimes look at the photos of that family of Tarek and Mustafa and the rest of 
his family and just wonder what happened to them because at the time of course um syria is it something of a precipice it was no one had any sense of that at the time uh, it was only a, a couple of months a few months after i left the country that it descended into this long conflict i don't know what happened to them i don't know whether they they left the country or whether they they were still there in the same place and uh, again when I met Syrians back in the UK and especially when I was back home and um, in a country in which the government were uh, trying to create a hostile environment for people who potentially had lost their homes or certainly were in many of whom were in fear of their lives. So it was um, that was a really kind of a special memory anyway from Syria to to have to be shown that kind of kindness and I just hope that people can show that kind of kindness to to Syrians for the ones that have been forced to leave their country as well. So after Syria he headed south through the deserts of Jordan and into Cairo. Now he was in northern Africa. A whole new continent and a new adventure awaited. And this time he had a friend to keep him company, Naomi, whom he describes as a contradiction in motion, a dangerous, grinning, misanthropic hippie, all freckles and pent up road rage. This was going to be fun. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Teamed up with my friend Naomi for Africa. Our plan was to cycle the length of Africa, mainly down the east side of the continent. And then we got into the Sahara Desert. It's this very beautiful in the evening time where the colours were sharper and you can just throw up your tent anywhere, really. You didn't have to look for a campsite. Uh, but very hot in the middle of the day, so we'd crawl under the road into these corrugated drains and we'd kind of drink some water and have a bit of a sleep. Um, things got a bit more complicated when we got to Ethiopia. In Ethiopia... There was just a lot of attention. There was just like kids everywhere kind of like chasing our bicycles. Often made it kind of easier to get up the big mountains in Ethiopia because they would run and push us up the up the mountain, sometimes for miles at a time, which made it much, much easier. And the other thing that 
uh, was sometimes a bit difficult was um, was rough camping. So I spent more than a thousand nights just throwing my tent up by the side of the road, and I really loved that. I began to treat it like kind of hide and seek against the world, because if someone finds your tent, it's very unlikely that that's going to be a problem in itself. You know, most people are, uh, are kind and considerate human beings, and they're not going to cause you any issue. But of course, in a lot of these sleepy villages, not much happens. So you're news. So that person might go back to the village and they'll tell a few people that you're there, and suddenly you get a bit of an audience, and that can be quite stressful. And a, a, a number of occasions in Ethiopia. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd find that at some point in the early hours, someone had discovered my tent and unzipped it. And now I have 15, 16 children who are just kind of intensely watching me sleep. In Kenya, I wanted to travel through a very remote part of the country called Turkana. Now, this is um, an area that Naomi sensibly decided she didn't want to cycle to. So she was going to grab a bus, get on a bus and meet me in a month's time. Turkana is the largest county in Kenya and it's uh, the poorest, isolated place. It's kind of a hostile climate, desert, very little infrastructure. It's the size of the Republic of Ireland. There's only really one proper town. There's very few roads. So I knew this was going to be a challenging part of the trip. and I knew this was going to be um, a real adventure as well. And the road ended. I got to the Omo River and these two guys helped me across with a dugout canoe. And then I was on the other side of the river. There were no proper roads. It was just these trails. And I found it very difficult to navigate because I didn't have a phone or reliable GPS or anything like that. So there were a few guys kind of patrolling the desert with AK-47s and there were some herders as well and they were able to sometimes point me in the right direction but at this point I was carrying 20 litres of water on my bicycle and it was hot as well uh, and it was all very sandy so pretty slow going and, and frightening as well but that was the point of it I guess you know I liked that sense of being at risk and I enjoyed that sense of being out of my depth and being sort of at the mercy of the landscape and the weather and making mistakes and then trying to kind of deal with the consequences. I think it's just an essence of a good adventure, isn't it? That sense of vulnerability that's very much tied up with my sense of adventure, knowing that things could go wrong and then you're going to have to be self-reliant. You're going to have to get yourself out of that situation. That's an interesting feeling. I like that. And I think the more that you... The danger is that the more you do that, the more you want it, I think. And as the journey progressed, I found myself taking ever greater risks, really. And that risk that he was seeking, that sense of vulnerability and self-reliance, he definitely found in Turkana. He was warned before crossing it of bandits called Shifta who would attack travellers. Caravans of supplies had to be accompanied by armed guards. People told him to turn around, told him that people die here, and they showed him bullet wounds to prove it. When he crossed the Omo River, the sign that welcomed him read, Welcome, value your life. Not exactly your average tourist brochure stuff. But still, he kept on, drowning in desert at times, he says, getting lost often. But that's also what he was seeking. In the book, he quotes Camus, What gives value to travel is fear. It breaks down a kind of inner structure we have. And perhaps that's right. Perhaps that's why we seek it. Perhaps that's how we break out of that predictability, those boxes we're born into. Perhaps it's in fear and risk we find that uncertainty that Stephen was looking for, and with it, the thrill of being truly alive. 
But it was also here that he visited his first medical clinic. He'd been on the road for almost a year and he began to want more than that, more than just the open road. Another quote from the book, this time from the famous travel writer Paul Theroux, who said, I don't see how it's possible to get to the truth of a country without seeing its underside, its hinterland, its everyday life. By visiting medical clinics, he could explore the landscapes of the world and at the same time, the landscape of health, the way it changed, the way different forces around the world affected it. He could find something of that underside, that hinterland, that truth. The clinic that I was able to visit was for the mums and infants and it was in a very remote part of the county. At the time, Tekana was in the middle of this very severe drought. No rain at all had fallen during the short wet season and this water shortage was compounded by the fact that they were building dams on the Omo River. That was so that multinationals could plant uh, cash crops and that had furthered the kind of water depletion and that kind of made the situation worse so it was difficult circumstances and this was one of the experiences i guess that had me thinking about all the different things that influence health the drivers of poor health and disease and it's really complicated and i think that we're often conditioned to think of poverty being the, the main problem in these resource poor settings and that's what the cause of of disease and poor health but here i realized that although that was very important there were lots of other things at play as well health in turkana he writes was not governed simply by money but by land and climate by culture conflict migration history and politics it hinged on everything from health costs to the movement of sandflies. It was swayed by bilateral trade deals, some politician's father, the wetness of the wet season, the road built with Chinese money, the price of oil in Saudi Arabia. Medicine, he realized, couldn't function in isolation. It couldn't just be about diseases and cures and what's happening in the body. It must work in tandem with the myriad complexities of political and social life. After Kenya, they crossed Botswana, dodging puff adders in the road, sleeping beside the roar of lions at night. They rode through the dusty, unruly back streets of Kampala, and then onto Rwanda, the stunningly gorgeous snow-capped peaks of the Renzori Mountains, charging elephants the shores of Lake Malawi. They slept in villages at night, sharing campfires. They skirted beside the impossibly lush wetlands of the Okavanga Delta and crossed the parched white sands of the Namib Desert. Until finally, after nine months, they reached Cape Town on the southern tip of Africa, and all that lay before them was the clash of two oceans, the Indian and the Atlantic, and thousands of miles of sea. Cape Town was the kind of vantage point, really. I was able to look back at the last almost nine months that I'd spent cycling through Africa and realise that my perception of Africa was very different now compared to how it had been prior to, to the journey. And I realised that I thought of Africa as a much more varied place than I think I'd ever assumed it was and a much more welcoming place as well. Even coming into Cape Town, coming into South Africa through the Northern Cape, uh, there was a guy who stopped his car and just tried to hand me a big sack of oranges through the window of his car. And um, a few miles up the road, someone tried to do the same, but with money. They were trying to give me money out the window of the car. And then as I got into cycling into Cape Town, 
Um, another guy actually stopped his car and said, look, I've got a city house or a beach house. Which one would you like to stay at? And then he gave me his front door keys on the side of the highway, a complete stranger. And we stayed in both the beach house and the city house. <laughs> so I had this kind of hospitality all the way to the end of the continent. It reminded me very much of this. There's a Bantu notion called uh, Ubuntu. And the best way I think I've heard it described is uh, I am who I am because of who we all are. And that was something that felt very important, really, at the end of this journey through Africa. It felt very relevant. I'd had so much hospitality, so many gifts along the way, and people had helped me out um, all, the, all the way through, really. Ubuntu is an amazing word. It's an amazing concept, and he describes it really well. I am who I am because of who we all are. And it's particularly relevant in terms of what he was discovering about medicine and health. We each affect each other. We create each other through the shared world, the shared vision of a world we manifest and build together. We are responsible for each other. We are dependent on each other. And because of that, we must care for each other too. Africa conquered, he waved goodbye to Naomi and set off on his own again now to Ushuaia and the southern tip of South America. He was back in Patagonia. And this time, he wasn't stopping for anyone. The beginning Patagonia is this kind of blustery. My head was often like dropped and it was windy and I was going into a headwind and it was difficult. Uh, and things got much more interesting when I got into the Andes Mountains. And then uh, I was got very, very much addicted to that scenery and the challenge of getting over the mountains. I think that when you're kind of working hard getting up a mountain then you become very sensitive to your kind of your your own body to the bicycle so I took ages through South America just because I got uh, obsessed with this idea of going from Chile to Argentina and then back to Chile again and sort of zigzagging my way up and I think I crossed that border 10 times trying to seek out these small mountain passes again where I could get that sense of vulnerability of being alone in wild places I've really enjoyed the desert passes in the north between Chile and Argentina. Uh, and of course, then you've got the salt flats in Bolivia. It's this really um, incredible place to ride. It's pristine, feels pristine landscape. And no roads, of course, so you just kind of um, can cycle across. And you don't really have to think about it. It's a great sense of freedom when you're out there and camping on there as well. We were lucky. We were there. I was cycling with a guy called Nicky at the time, this bike mechanic from Birmingham. And there's a, a full moon. So at nighttime, the Salar just turned this strange blue color. And it was just very, very beautiful. And uh, kind of hard to sleep because I kept kind of wanting to look outside my tent to admire this um, very bizarre landscape. Um, one that I'd never really experienced before. The Bolivian salt flats, the Salar de Uni, is spectacular. And when he was there, it was the rainy season, which is actually the best time to go because a thin film of water forms and reflects the sky in perfect mirror symmetry. Riding across the clouds, that's not bad. And the Andes are equally beautiful. He writes... No mountain range has the colors of them, where salmon, cream, and peach can swirl together like the blending gases in artist impressions of distant planets. I felt simultaneously miniaturized by the mountains and part of something larger. And then from Bolivia, he crossed into Peru, and that's when things got a little hairy. So I was in the mountains somewhere, and I was quite far from a town at the end of the day I'd come across this 
kind of house that looked abandoned it's like derelict and I went to investigate because I noticed that it had a roof that jutted out and my tent at the time was falling apart a bit, had holes in it. And I thought I could get my tent right by the side of this building. I'd get a little bit of extra protection from the rain. So I looked inside and the, the place just looked derelict, really. There was like you know, weeds growing all over the place. And I thought, fine, I set my tent up. I'll go get a bit of sleep. And I woke up in the early hours. And I think anyone who's been camping will know that experience of sort of hearing something but not being able to see it and it's quite frightening and you just sort of stay still very still listening um, trying to figure out what it is that's outside and I realised that I was listening to footsteps I realised after a couple of minutes that the footsteps were now very close to my tent and so whoever was outside had uh, certainly discovered me and it was time to kind of like have a look and see who it was so I unzipped my tent looked outside, couldn't see anything at first and then there was this figure and they kind of walked towards me this grubby face appeared at the in the porch of my tent and I looked down and I realized that it looked like he was holding a gun and I had this massive sinking feeling uh, and it happened very fast yanked on a pair of shorts and I jumped out of the tent and he was pointing the gun at me looking very nervous himself and he ordered me into his into this building which turned out to be his home and i remember turning and walking and uh not knowing whether i was going to get shot as i was walking or or what was going to happen and i get into this um this house and it actually it wasn't completely derelict as i thought it was there was a little stove in the corner and I started babbling. I, I spoke a bit of Spanish, so I was just trying to explain who I was. I was saying I was a tourist, you know, I was just I'm just I was looking for a bit of shelter from the rain. And he began to look a little bit more relaxed. And then he said, um, Kira Sopa, do you want some soup? And um I wasn't sure what to say. And then he offered me chicken or tomato. So I thought, this is great. I'm getting an option here. It's fantastic. I'll have tomato soup. And then we had this, I had this very strange experience of sitting down with this guy who's recently taken me hostage at gunpoint, um, having a bowl of tomato soup with him. And um, I thanked him very much for the soup. And I went back to my tent uh, with his permission. And I slept very soundly. And the next morning, I heard his voice outside my tent and he brought me a bowl of tomato soup. So I was getting breakfast in bed. I still now, when I eat tomato soup, I kind of, I, I recall that incident and um, I remember that I kind of, I almost died once. That must have been the best damn bowl of soup he ever had. So he survived Peru. He crossed into the cloud forests of Ecuador and Colombia, where he was plagued by rain and mud and insects crawling into his shoes and inside his tent and even inside his dinner plate. That crunch and explosion of bitter goo, he writes, was an invertebrate. Nothing to do but swallow hard and get used to it. But now he had to race. Crossing Alaska in winter would not be fun and quite likely impossible. So he had to put those now tree trunk sized legs to work and blast through Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and that final slog through Mexico and onto the American border. Central America passed by in a blur of beaches and coffee plantations. He made it. He was on to his fourth continent. <laughs> 
America just seemed full of more stuff. You had more choices. You go to the supermarket, you've got more things to worry about. There were suddenly all these signs saying things like, you are entering a tsunami risk zone. And I'd been, I'd been in a vast tsunami risk zone for months. I cycled up through Central America, but it just hadn't occurred to me until I got to uh, the US. I was a bit fitter at this stage um, because I've been in the mountains for so long. So I was able to kind of do long days and, and move north at a bit uh, faster pace. He raced through up the Pacific Coast Highway, along the Californian coast, that classic road, into the wilder, windswept beaches of Oregon, heading for Canada, racing the colder weather to Dead Horse in the far north of Alaska. But there was one stop left before he left America, and let's just say it wasn't exactly what he was expecting. There are naked bike rides all over the world, but the one in Portland is the biggest in the world, probably. It's also... Uh, happens at night time. Uh, it's not just the kind of old hippies and, and the naturists. It's the sort of like young hipsters and it turns into this massive naked rave where it did when I was there. So it's, um, it was a pretty surreal experience and it struck me as very Portland as well. So it was great. It was like you, you, you kind of go on this naked bike ride and then you throw the bike down and you just have this naked party for hours and hours and hours. And um, it was for me, it was great as being someone who's just traveling through. It must have been quite a different experience if you're like uh, naked in front of all the people that you work with or the people that you've known for years. <laughs> like, I bet when he started out on this journey, he didn't realize that out of those 53,000 miles, about 10 of them would be naked with a bunch of old hippies and hipsters. But that's Portland. And then from there, further north through Canada and Alaska, dodging bears and ice road truckers before reaching Dead Horse and a flight to Australia. And we're skipping through here pretty fast. Lots happened, of course. But I want to get to Asia because it was there that the deeper part of his journey really started to take shape. So Australia was insane heat, swimming holes in the bush and all manner of things that can kill you, including, he writes, the common death adder, three words I'd been dismayed to find exist in sequence. And then finally, Asia began, the last continent on his journey, the biggest and most daunting, but also the most important of the entire trip. Here, two journeys would begin in tandem. The sensory rush, the mud and wind, the adventure, as he calls it, of the physical ride, but also a journey to understand the forces shaping health, and through that, a glimpse into that hinterland, that underbelly, that truth of the world that he was travelling through. I sort of island hopped through Indonesia to Singapore, and then I, I cycled up through uh, Malaysia and into Thailand. At this stage, I was kind of feeling a little bit burnt out, I suppose. I'd been on the, on the road for a very long time, and I wondered whether I should start visiting some medical projects and I had this experience uh, years before in Africa in Tekana and that had opened my eyes to a lot of the things that the sort of social context to health and disease in that specific area and I thought maybe I could kind of indulge my curiosity I could kind of visit other medical projects and that would maybe give me a fresh sense of purpose as I travelled. I was getting kind of a quite a rosy view of the world by travelling through it on a bicycle. People were very kind and friendly and hospitable. But I got very much the sense that I wasn't getting to the bottom of things and I wasn't seeing some of the problems in the places that I was travelling through. And that's simply because I was a very fleeting visitor. I didn't have the time, I didn't have the language to, to get to the heart of things. And I felt that visiting some of these medical projects, I would be able to 
use that sort of medical lens to try and understand a bit about some other issues in the areas that I was traveling through. So it was a way to um, sort of dig beneath the surface. One of the projects that I visited was the, called the Lake Clinic, and this is in a big lake in Cambodia called the Tonle Sap. One of the quirks of this ecosystem is that the direction of flow switches a couple of times a year in the Mekong River and that causes the, the the lake to swell to five times its size and then it shrinks again and they call this the flood pulse. About a million people live on the lake on the floodplain and many of these people had been pushed there through poverty. Some had been born on the lake, they'd never been to the mainland. Some had fled there after the civil war. So they're there for a variety of reasons and they live in these floating homes, in these floating villages. And the Lake Clinic was there to provide some community health care uh, to people who otherwise wouldn't have access to, to medical care. There were no heroics. It was kind of simple health care, dentistry, screening, prevention, all that kind of thing. Cambodia at the time had one of the lowest ratios in the world of doctors to people. I think it was about one to 10,000. And that, of course, has lots of consequences People would often go to traditional healers, but sometimes they would go to unlicensed doctors as well. There were stories of babies being overloaded with intravenous fluid. There was a famous story in the northwest of Cambodia of a doctor reusing syringes and inadvertently infecting people with HIV. So that had opened my eyes to some of the, the consequences of there not being enough medical professionals. There's a really poignant part of the book here where he's volunteering at this clinic and a nine-year-old boy comes in with his mother desperately poor, sick and wheezing, covered in dirt and weighing only 30 pounds, about half of what should be expected of a boy his age. And he realizes that despite the best efforts, the heroic efforts of the doctors there, there was also a sense of futility of what they could do set against these social and political forces that were lined up against this boy that were well beyond anyone's ability to set right. You come into medicine, he writes, with an understanding that disease and pathology are the threats to health. But the more patients you treat, the more you see that it's the conditions for disease that are the real enemy. Or in other words, Ubuntu. I am who I am because of who we all are. And I wondered for him particularly, knowing what the prognosis for a boy like that would be back at home at St. Thomas's Hospital in London versus here, knowing that the kind of treatment that was available there but out of reach for this boy and his family was that particularly difficult for him to see that contrast? Health, if it truly is only about the body, about the disease itself, should be democratic, it should be fair. But not for this boy, not for the people that lived on this lake. It was difficult to see that contrast, especially when you're talking about preventable, treatable diseases. And that was very much true when I visited another clinic in Myanmar and that was on the border of Thailand, Myanmar. And at the time, very little money was being spent in Myanmar on healthcare. I think it was about 2% of the national budget when about 40% was being spent on the military. So a lot of people were coming from Myanmar in, into Thailand for medical uh, care that they couldn't get in, in at home. And uh, there was a clinic on the border just inside Thailand. And I met a young woman there who was emaciated and dying and she had HIV and TB and she'd been carried by a monk from uh, 
Myanmar where she'd been left outside a monastery. Uh, she'd been carried to this medical clinic in and out of consciousness. Uh, and she died a few hours after I got there. And she died of, you know, conditions that we can treat. So yeah, it's always very sad to see people um, dying of these preventable diseases. And you often wonder uh, what it is exactly they're dying from, whether it's these diseases or whether it's uh, the other things that you wouldn't mention on a death certificate, things like military rule and, and extreme poverty and um, the, the kind of social context to, to disease that we often don't consider a direct cause of death. But I think the, these, these things can be considered modes of death as well. That woman's name was Paul Chu, and what he doesn't say about that story is that the Buddhist monk that carried her did so at great personal cost. In Myanmar, Buddhist monks are forbidden to have any physical contact with women whatsoever. So when she was left at the gates of that monastery dying, none of them would carry her inside or feed her or even swat away the flies that were already swarming around her. Except this one man. Even though he had given his life to that monastery, he decided in that moment to put down his robes and leave the monkhood for good. He picked her up and carried her all the way to this clinic and held her hand as she died. And though the worst of us led Paul Tu to this place, the violence and tribalism and poverty of that troubled part of the world, the best of us were there with her at the end. And that is also who we are. And I think maybe in the long run, give some hope for what we may one day yet achieve when the care that we give our most vulnerable whoever wherever they are is just as good as the care our most prominent and rich and successful and lucky receive ubuntu he left myanmar soon after and crossed into india somehow surviving those crazy roads on a bicycle one of the signs he passed actually said if everything comes towards you you are in the wrong lane, which gives you some idea of the kind of thing he was dealing with. And from there into Nepal, where the plan was to bike the Annapurna circuit, which is crazy because most of it, for starters, is above 15,000 feet, so the air is thin. Plus, you're climbing a total of about 33,000 feet, which is the equivalent of going from the base camp of Everest to the summit three times on a bike. The Annapurna circuit is obviously this very famous uh, hiking trail. Lots of people do it every year. And I didn't have much time in Nepal. So for me, this was like kind of an easy way to get deeper into the into the mountains. So I teamed up with this American cyclist called Mike. Uh, we left most of our kit in a guest house. We went out a bit lighter. And our plan was to cycle the route. And we started off, we got to this village called Munang, which is about just over 3,000 meters, I think. And we stayed in this little guest house. And the next morning, uh, we woke up. Manang was covered in snow. And this was really weird because it was dry season in Nepal. And there was a lot of snow in Manang. So I was just started to wonder how much snow there was going to be higher up on the pass. And it was odd. It seemed really odd to me. There were no weather warnings had been communicated to us or to anybody else that we'd met on the route. And we started seeing helicopters then flying overhead. So we knew that something really bad was happening. Me and Mike decided we'd keep going. We'd try to go to High Pass, but we'd leave our bicycles in Menang. We'd, we'd do this on foot. So we started hiking. And after a day or so, we came to the body of a Tibetan monk and who was uh, frozen in the snow and had been dead for some time. It was really shocking. I mean, you know, I see a lot of um, shocking situations in A&E when I'm working in the resuscitation room. But I think that 
when you see something outside the hospital, it sometimes brings it all home about how much that you as a doctor kind of separate yourself from the reality of what you're dealing with. When you're witness to something really tragic happening outside of the hospital, I think it can be even more shocking just because you're not prepared for it. It was a, a sad day. I, mean, I think almost 50 people died either in the blizzard or in avalanches. I think especially after an incident like that, you kind of you see danger in the world around you in a way that you perhaps you didn't before. And you're more, I think I was maybe a little bit more cautious in the aftermath of that. Uh, you start to think about how small decisions that you make could have big consequences and did make me reflect again about my experience as, as a doctor and how I perhaps become a little bit used to to death and to you know disease and you have to witness something outside the hospital to to make you aware of that i think that separating ourselves from the reality of death is something we all do and although that protects us in many ways i think there's a benefit to facing up to it too and i've experienced this when you do get a glimpse as stephen did that day of the fragility and precariousness of life it also brings home how precious it is and how grateful we should be for each and every day. And in that sense, facing death, staring it in the eye, however hard and desperate and sad that is, is also a great teacher. But he had to go on. He abandoned the idea of doing the Annapurna circuit. It was just too dangerous to continue. Jump back on his bike and on with his mission. He visited a leprosy clinic, a mental health clinic, a refugee slum. He found bravery and tragedy, and he found those same markers of the deeper underlying causes of disease and poor health, isolation, stigmatization, poverty, culture, belief. And then, now back in India, he found himself stuck. I reached a bit of a cul-de-sac at this point because I couldn't get a visa to travel through Pakistan, and I couldn't get permission to travel through Tibet. So my plan was to fly from Mumbai to Hong Kong. Uh, I was going to cycle home from Hong Kong, but... I wasn't quite sure I'd get all the way across China in the time that my visa allowed. So I thought, what I'll do is I'll, I'll cycle the other way uh, up through China and, and kind of check out into Mongolia, and then I can come back into China. But that meant cycling through Mongolia in the winter time, and I knew that was going to be difficult. I started cycling through China. I mean, it was just, I felt so out of my depth in China. It was this colossal country. The language is, is very difficult, I think, for an English speaker. Things started getting colder as I progressed through China. It was minus 20 at night, minus 25. I was cycling through uh, the Gobi Desert. There were these kind of dead camels by the side of the road with pools of snow around them. And it started to realize that this was getting a sort of wilder place and that it was going to be difficult from here on out. Um, Mongolia was colder still and it, was, it got to sort of minus 40 degrees at night time. I was a bit tougher, I guess, at this stage. I'd been on the road for about five years or something, and I was a bit more used to it. I had three sleeping bags now, so I was able to tolerate the cold much better than I was able to tolerate the cold when I was a, uh, a novice cyclist back in Europe. And uh, one of the great boons about cycling across Mongolia this time of year was that the lakes are frozen. And there was a lake in the north called Hovskol, I was able to cycle across this frozen lake and I was able to camp on the surface as well. Probably my favourite camping spot from the entire journey. And I was able to listen to the sound that the ice makes all night as well. And it cracked and popped. And sometimes you'd hear a bubbling sound from deep beneath the ice. So that was just fantastic. And um, 
uh, waking up on the ice as the sun rose uh, over the the Tega was just just one of the, one of my most special memories. He skims over it, but crossing Mongolia in winter is as insane as it sounds. Beautiful ice lake camping or not. But it was also incredible. He slept in remote nomadic cares, feasts of lamb, fart jokes, the great universal communicator, terrifying sleep talking from giant Mongolian wrestlers. And he found in the land of the blue sky his himori, his wind horse, as the Mongolians say, a sense of being liberated, unbounded by the vastness of the landscape, as light and free as the wind itself. But if Mongolia in winter was insanely dangerous, what he did next, in many ways, was even more so. I hadn't planned to go to Afghanistan. I thought that was kind of out of bounds. But I suppose as the journey progressed, going places that felt out of bounds had become a bit of a habit. And I wondered whether going to Afghanistan was taking that to an extreme uh, and whether this was a sensible thing to do. I teamed up with another cyclist called Sam's Australian and our plan was really just to go into the north of Afghanistan to this city called Mazari Sharif, right in the north. I was very curious about the country. I'd read lots of books about Afghanistan, travel books. Um, Sam had gone full Afghan, so he was dressed in a shalwar kameez. He had shaved his moustache and grown his beard, and he had leather sandals. So he was very much trying to blend in. Although he did have these like luminous yellow panniers on his bicycle and he had an eyebrow piercing and he had a tattoo of the band The Grateful Dead on his leg as well. So he didn't look completely Afghan. But um, I was kind of just hoping that there would be no irony to the band's name. We crossed the border into Afghanistan feeling, you know, vulnerable. It was a desert uh, region and... I was very much spooked by the, the country and, and wasn't quite sure about the risks we were taking. And we were sort of trying to cycle quite quickly. We wanted to get to Mazar Sharif before it got dark. And I remember feeling this sense of trepidation and then this car pulling up alongside me. And I was instantly worried. It was like, who's this, who's this guy? What's going on? And then this guy started shouting from the window of the car and he said, hello, my friend. Welcome to my country. I'm from Slough. You know the office, Ricky Gervais, David Brent. Of all people, David Brent has made it all the way to Afghanistan. And for my American and international friends, Slough is perhaps the most depressing town in England and the setting for the original British version of the office. So to meet someone from Slough on the Afghan border was in reverse the equivalent of meeting an Afghani sheep herder, flock and all, wandering through Times Square. It kind of instantly put me at ease. And um, I travelled into Mazari Sharif, and from then on, I was kind of less afraid and much more tuned in to the fact that people were waving at me all the time and and welcoming me. And um, there were lots of roadblocks. There was lots of military around. There were helicopters overhead as well. So the military element that made me feel a bit anxious. But the people who saw me ride past or as ride past were were very much welcoming. When I was able to visit this project in. Um, the hospital in Mazari Sharif. And it was on the ward that I met this young boy called Bez Miller. And, and Bez Miller had been sent on an errand by his mum to the bazaar in a town a couple of hours away from Mazar. And whilst he was in the bazaar, a woman had blown herself up with a pressure cooker and that had thrown him into a ditch uh, with a, a fractured femur and a head injury. 
He'd been kind of taken to the nearest medical clinic where, should we say, an underskilled surgeon had performed an operation uh, pretty poorly to try and join the ends of his fractured bone. The operation wasn't a success. He had developed an infection. He had also non-union of the bones. He's going to now require further operations and he was quite psychologically traumatized as well so he'd been scooped up by the red crescent and then he'd been taken to this hospital in mazar sharif and it really was again a, a kind of reminder of how important it is to have well-trained medics close by when these emergencies happen there was a huge ripple effect of course because not only with this had a massive influence on his life but it had a big effect on his family as well his mum had taken the rest of her kids out of school to care for him and they were then sewing clothes together and then potentially that was a whole generation of that family that were deprived of an education. From here, though it was still far away, he was now facing home and pedalling hard to reach it. He crossed the stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan and the Caspian Sea. He rode the southern edge of the Black Sea, tired but still elated by the journey, by the freedom of it, the simplicity. Camp wild, ride all day, repeat. And then from Georgia into Turkey and Turkey into Bulgaria and Austria and Germany. And then a flash, a lifetime later... He arrived back at Calais, back where he had ridden off the ferry into the winter of Europe six long years ago. It was a strange moment. It was one that I'd thought about a lot really coming home and I didn't really know how I was going to react. I think at the end of any stage of the trip, like when I got to Cape Town or when I got to Dead Horse, I'd, I'd feel very much torn between this kind of regret that I was leaving a part of the world but also looking forward to the next stage and excitement about the next stage of the journey and I suppose that's how I felt coming home as well I was sad that this journey was over I wouldn't I felt like I probably wouldn't have that much freedom again but I was looking forward to the next stage I was excited about uh, writing a book about the journey that had been my intention for a long time and I was really excited about rejoining my profession as well um, I'd really missed that and I was also excited about being around my family and my friends and people that I hadn't seen for a very long time so lots of sort of mixed emotions and a, a real fear that I didn't know how I was going to cope as well because I'd been traveling for more than six years. I'd been sleeping by roadsides for more than a thousand nights. I was kind of very used to that lifestyle and now I was trying to sort of rejoin normal life. It's going to be difficult. I remember coming towards Westminster Bridge and seeing these people huddled outside St. Thomas's Hospital and just having a really I took a bit of a moment uh, to myself and just wondering how I was going to react when I got there um, it was a very emotional moment you know I'd spent a long time away from home and I cycled in hugged my mum got handed a bottle of cheap Prosecco and then pretty much went straight to the pub and then um, and that was it he had done it. One of the longest bike rides ever, the equivalent of twice around the equator or a quarter of the way to the moon. And when he arrived back at St. Thomas's Hospital, where it had all began, he fell into the arms of his friends and family and ended up back at the pub, back where he had paused a few miles from the starting line, daunted and overwhelmed those six years ago. But this time different, a little wiser, a lot stronger irreversibly changed as only deep long-term travel can do but coming home as amazing as that felt wasn't easy 
Soon after I got home, I was pushing a shopping trolley up in, through Sainsbury's and I felt my left hand kind of tighten and shift around the handle of the trolley and I realised that I was trying to change gear in the shopping trolley. Um, so I was kind of like stood there in complete shock, wondering what was going to happen to me. The facts of my life were pretty rubbish at this point. I was a balding, single, 35-year-old blogger who was living with his mum and was in debt to all his friends. And I didn't have much money. I, I couldn't go straight back to work. And so my mum took me shopping for clothes. And I remember following her around this shop as she held up these jeans for me to try on. And I looked across and there was this 10-year-old in a very similar position following his mum. And we kind of shared this look that was just like, oh, you know, mums. <laughs> and it just thought, like, this is going to take quite a long time to adjust. But mostly I was excited to be home. And to suddenly feel that there is this familiarity that I was, I was missing. I was quite tired of moving at this point and I was quite tired of waking up in the morning and trying to figure out where I was and I was quite tired of living on a very strict budget and I was definitely ready for home and I was also kind of looking forward to being part of a community about feeling purposeful about you know having a stake in something I didn't want to be just perpetually moving and feeling like I didn't have a stake in things I didn't want to be observer I just wanted to be I wanted to sort of participate in life again it's interesting we often fantasize about perpetual travel a nomadic life that endless blur of sensation in the new the antipathy of being trapped in jobs and mortgages and three weeks holiday a year and though Stephen felt that, that wistfulness for the freedom he was leaving, he also wanted to be part of something again, to be more than just an observer, a passing stranger. He wanted to be part of a community, to be part of people's lives, to make a difference. And though I do think that the instinct to explore is part of who we are, it's a defining aspect. The instinct to belong is just as strong and ultimately catches up with you in the end. But they work together too, because that instinct to travel, that explorer's mind, is also something you bring back with you. And when you do, the world becomes a little closer together. We become a little more united. And that really is the point of it all. There felt a very strong sense of divergence, of sort of bordering off when I got home. And that was in stark contrast to the big take-home messages, really, that for me, uh, from this journey. One of those, I think, was that we're all intimately and hopelessly connected. We've got far more in common than it kind of divides us. And it can kind of sound quite trite to say that. But I just think in this current political climate as well, you can't really say that enough. And I suppose I've had that attitude for a couple of reasons, really. But first of all, because my perspective was very much shaped by the fact that I was on a bicycle. And from a bicycle, you're privy to a lot of everyday life. And everyday life is quite similar around the world. So you get this sense that we all have a lot in common uh, just through being on a bicycle. The other thing is that my perspective was shaped by the fact that I'm a doctor. And so I was visiting healthcare projects. And healthcare deals with the sort of raw ingredients of our humanity as sort of our blood and bones you know so it, it reminds me as well that we're very similar you know, on the inside so that definitely shaped my perspective as well felt very much in awe of the complexity of the world i remember being a medical student as well and being 
introduced to the complexities of the human body. And I remember feeling a very similar sense of awe at that point as well. There's a very human urge to to reduce things, to simplify, and that causes all kinds of problems. And it's some of those problems were very much part of um, the reason why people's health suffers around the world. There are lots of biases at work and there are lots of people who are marginalized, politically marginalized, socially marginalized, culturally marginalized, and and that can sometimes have a devastating effect on their health. Um, And I think that that marginalization sometimes comes down to this inability to accept that the world is a complicated place and that it's a, a diverse place as well, but that we're fundamentally the same. We are all intimately and helplessly connected. Isolationism, he writes, is not simply doomed, it is a fallacy. Dr. Martin Luther King calls this, as Stephen quotes in the book, the inescapable network of mutuality. We all depend and affect each other in ways that we can't even see or fully understand. We are all one. And what that means is not just the fundamental equality of humanity. It means more than that. It means more than we are just the same. It also means we must recognize the complexity of who we are, the complexity of the myriad ways which we affect each other, whether that's healthcare or politics or economics or social justice. No one thing can be extracted from the rest. Our society and values, the way we view and treat each other, our biases, our bigotry, Our compassion, our courage, our health, our politics are all interwoven, co-created and inextricable from each other. This is the web that binds us good and bad. I am who I am because of who we all are. Ubuntu. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for taking us on this incredible 53,000-mile adventure around the world. Thank you for sharing what you learned along the way. His book is called Signs of Life, A Doctor's Journey to the Ends of the Earth. And there's so much more in it than we could possibly cover today. And not only is it a great read and incredibly well-written and deep and insightful, it's also really, really funny. It's one of my favorite travel books. I know you're going to love it. You can buy it on Amazon, in your local bookshop, or by going to stephenfabes.com. His Instagram is at stephenfabes. The Twitter is drstephenfabes. And the Facebook page is Cycling the Six. Please go and connect with him right now. A big thank you to you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word. Tell a friend, a fellow explorer. Let's make this message our message of unity, positivity, and love for the outdoors grow. My social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. And the website is armchair-explorer.com. So it's time to sign off. But remember, before we do, keep being curious. Keep exploring. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.